0: You'll grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter twelve. We are going to finish up the first half of this gospel this morning. We've been in it since I think December twenty-one. It sounds like a long time ago, but it was the end of twenty-one, right? We haven't been in there a full two years, but I, I counted the number of messages that we've had in the first twelve plus eleven plus chapters. Well, no, twelve plus chapters of of um, this gospel, and it's 62. i preached 60 of those. Nate's preached one. Trevor preached one a couple weeks ago, but 62 messages, and we're just halfway through the gospel. So when Jesus comes back, we'll be hitting about chapter 23 of that (laughs) gospel. Uh, But we're going to take a two-month hiatus and uh, do a study that I've just simply entitled, In the Church. So we're going to do a study on ecclesiology. We're going to do a study on the church, Uh, In July and August, we're going to do nine messages talking about the church, in the church, what is in the church. And so next Sunday, we're going to begin that study. I know it's a holiday weekend, but uh, if you're not going out of town, which I hope is not most of you, uh, I encourage you to be with us. And We're going to talk about mission in the church, and then we're going to talk about membership in the church, and attendance in the church, and loving one another in the church, which is important. For a whole lot of reasons, but we are uh, really ramping up in the political season of the fall. And so many times, I don't know if that's a big issue here, but we all have varying opinions about everything in life. And so every few years when there's a strong political season, that can be a little contemptuous in life and even in the church. So how do we love one another well? Then we'll talk about discipline in the church, authority or leadership in the church, then we'll talk about women in the church. I mean, there's one, right? I mean, we as Southern Baptists, we've been tagged in the last few weeks that we hate women. And that's just not true. God has been gracious to his church and women. And you go through the Bible, you see all kinds of women do all wonderful things. It's just there are some roles and responsibilities that are gender-specific. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about ordinances in the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and remind ourselves of what those are and why they are important. And then we're going to finish up that last Sunday in August, Lord willing, talking about giving in the church. And why is that important? What is it supposed to look like? How am I supposed to be involved? So I believe this will be very uh, good for us. I think it will be very um, enlightening for us. So you may be asking the question, Pastor, why are you speaking on this again? I mean, you just did a series on... Uh, this subject not long ago. I think it was winter before last, so it's been a little while, but it's not been that long. What I want to do is constantly, meaning annually, if not a little bit after, maybe between 12 to 18 months, routinely, regularly speaking to this issue because we're finding more and more that uh, people are coming out of our culture, coming out of different denominational backgrounds, and it's important for us to understand what we believe Based upon what the Word of God teaches and how that applies and looks in our church, and so we're going to talk about this again. And uh, just not long ago, I was having a conversation with uh, a gentleman that's been attending our church for not long at the point. At that point, and he just asked me the simple question: Why is church membership important? And uh, I come from a long line of just being in the church and being a member of the church. I've been pastoring for years, and and, and so for me, it's second nature. Like, what do you mean it's not? How how is that important? But This day and age in which we're living in, we may not fully understand and grasp the magnitude of what it means to be a member and why that should be important. So we're going to talk about that over the next two months. Luke chapter 12, uh, find your place there in verse 49. We'll read that in just a moment. I don't think I brought my glasses up here. Blind without them. Uh, Yeah, babe, if you could grab those to me. This is my wife, Kara, if you haven't met her. (laughs) That's right. You know, um, I love history. I love um, war history and and battles and generals and strategy and, and all of those things. Some of you are in that same camp with me. But, you know, when you think about empires and how empires were made, when you think about all that, every great empire was made, came into existence through the point of a spear. In other words, they didn't argue their case. They didn't get people to, to coalesce around an idea necessarily. No, it was one king and his kingdom coming against another king and his kingdom. And they duked it out and the victor took the spoils. And so they built these empires by conquering other kingdoms. Napoleon understood this. That skillful military strategist, that great leader leader, understood this reality to be true. In fact, he said this, and I quote, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. Napoleon went on to say, but Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for him. He says Jesus Christ was more than a man. Napoleon understood what it took to create and to hold an empire, and it took the end of the spear. But when Napoleon looked at the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, he saw that his kingdom was an upside down kingdom, that it did not come into existence because Jesus led a military conquest, but instead loved people, spoke truth, and transformed people's lives. And so there's no doubt that Christ was more than a man. There's no doubt that his kingdom was and is an upside-down kingdom. Because we understand as we read the text, we read the New Testament, we see that he never, never gathered an army to wage a war. And he never saw, sought to garner political power. In fact, he was retreating from that. I remember last year, last February before last, when we were in Israel, some of us, I remember going to that mountain, that that hill peak right outside the city of Nazareth when people wanted to put him in position of power, and he just passes on through them. He never sought to garner or to align himself with political power. You see, Jesus was truly a man of peace, and yet he is a king with a kingdom that is ever expanding. How can that be? As we've been working through this first 11 and a half chapters of this gospel, this peaceful kingdom has been on display for us to see. We've been watching it, we've been observing it expand. We've seen the king's forerunner. Remember John the Baptist and how he was predicted and how he was going to come. And there in Luke chapter 1, verse 16, we see that John the Baptist, through his preaching, would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He was the forerunner of this king. We saw it in the foretelling of the king's incarnation. Remember that angel, the angel Gabriel, came and he told Mary that Jesus, who would be born to her, would be great and would be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there would be no end. We've seen in this peaceful kingdom, then the birth of Jesus, as the heavens erupted and the good news of great joy came... Coming out from the angels who were declaring this, that Christ had been born for all the people. We've also seen it in the calling of the disciples that Jesus called to himself. The men that Jesus called to follow him would expand his kingdom, would expand his teaching, would expand his reach. How would they do that? Not through the power of the sword, not through the end of a spear, but through the nets of the gospel. You Remember when Jesus called his first disciples, he said, come follow me and you will be fishers of men. You're going to take the nets of the gospel, and that's how the kingdom will be expanded. We've seen this kingdom through the teaching ministry of Jesus and his disciples. We've seen how men, women, boys, and girls were drawn into this upside-down kingdom through the preaching of the word. Allegiances were changed through persuasion and conviction rather than the threat of the spear. Many places of the world today, you will go and what you will find there is not a strong Christian church. You will find in many places an absent gospel. There, there are very few, of any, Christians in some of the places of the world. And in those places, you will find Muslims following the teaching of Allah through Muhammad. Think about the spread of Islam over the centuries from 600 something on. How has it spread? primarily through the end of the spear as they conquered other nations and forced them to become muslim that is not true of jesus and the gospel so toward the end of Luke chapter 12, that we find ourselves this morning, the tone of this gospel begins to change. And we see that as Jesus and his disciples were approaching Jerusalem, the cross that Jesus is anticipating begins to loom larger and larger and fills the Lord's mental horizon. In fact, it causes him to pause and it causes him to reflect on the fiery realities the cross would unleash upon him and upon his followers. And so I want us to read this morning, beginning in verse 49 through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I will tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds in verse 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Why do, you ju- why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. As we read these verses this morning, we see this idea of the kingdom divided. I want us to wrestle with that if we can over the next few minutes. Because as we've already seen, as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke, it opens with this announcement of peace, right? In the foretelling of Jesus and and his coming and what he's going to be and what he's going to accomplish, there is this major idea of peace, right? The heavens open up and they declare that the king has come, that peace is now going to reign on earth. And yet when we read what Jesus says here in these verses, it almost leads us to believe that the Bible is contradicting itself. You think that I've come to give peace? No. I've come to bring division. So kingdom divided, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? I want us to wrestle with that this morning. Because Jesus did come to bring peace. And yet that peace brings an element of division. I think we can understand this as we look through the rest of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, Paul explains in his letter to the church in Rome that sinful humanity in the rebellion against God has exchanged the truth of God for a a lie. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1. What he's saying there is that the creature has chosen to worship the created over and above the creator. So we suppress truth And in essence, what humanity is doing is declaring open war against the God who created them. Therefore, it would be completely understandable to read in his letter that God has unleashed the full force of his kingdom power against all who would seek to overthrow his rule. And yet, what we read of in God's word is his sacrifice on behalf of those who are in rebellion. We see the sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ. We see a death. We see a burial. We see a resurrection, all for the purpose of bringing rebellious human beings who have desired and wanted to worship the created over the creator. Instead of rebelling or destroying them in their rebellion, he seeks to redeem them. Sinful lives we see in Romans 3 are justified and redeemed. So those who were once at war with God through Christ now can enjoy peace with him. Believers and followers of Jesus Christ enjoy these riches of their king and his kingdom. You see, the reason that has happened and the reason they get to enjoy that is because there's an allegiance that's changed in their life. Romans 1 tells us that in our sinfulness, we continue down this path of suppressing truth, running from truth, rejecting God. But when we see the gospel and believe the gospel and turn from our sin, there's a transformation that takes place. Our allegiances change. We were once allied with the king of this world and his kingdom, but now in Christ, we're allied with him and his kingdom, his kingdom principles. Jesus' words remind us that there are only two kingdoms in this world. We could go around the world today and take a globe and just kind of spin it and look at all the countries that are represented on that globe. And we could go back through history and and look at the timeline of, of different kingdoms and empires and all the influences and things that have happened over history From creation till today, what we would see that while while there are many kingdoms and many empires, even present day, there are really only two kingdoms. What are those two kingdoms? The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world, led by Satan himself. This worldly kingdom. And so there's only two, two kingdoms. There's a heavenly kingdom. There's an earthly kingdom. And so we see here a kingdom divide two kingdoms are at odds with one another. That's an understatement. So let's work through this text this morning. I want you to see three appeals that are on display for us. First of all, I want you to wrestle with this idea of achieving peace through war. We see w- warish things on the news all the time, or we read them in the news all the time. I uh, was away for a wedding Friday night, so I didn't really watch any news Friday into yesterday evening and. I didn't have a clue what was going on in Russia, but apparently it seems like there was a somewhat of a coup that was taking place where a general, a high-ranking general had some folks with him, and he's marching toward Moscow, and somehow that was put down without a shot being fired. So we read of these things happening all the time, that there is war taking place and the threat of war all the time. How do we have peace. Many times we think that peace comes when we just get together and talk it out. But in reality, as you look at history, the majority of peace comes from the tip of the spear. You gain peace by putting down the other aggressor. So as we read verse 49 here, it is disturbing, right? I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it it were already kindled. That there was already fire burning because that's what I'm desiring to see. So Jesus here declares his intentions, which are to cast fire upon the earth. You think about that image, you think about that picture and his uh, title of being the Prince of Peace. It doesn't look or sound very peaceful. Wielding a flamethrower over the face of the earth and kindling it doesn't seem very peaceful. Amen? I like... War stories, and I like watching war movies that are true to the 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 facts of the battles. And so, when I think about this fire being kindled over the face of the earth, and the idea of maybe of a flamethrower, my mind goes to those images I've seen where American soldiers are using flamethrowers to burn the jungle so they can get through while fighting the Japanese, or the same thing taking place in our conflict with Vietnam. Those are not peaceful times. So we see two sides to this fire that comes with Jesus. First, when John the Baptist, with John the Baptist, he explained to those who were coming to him for baptism, if you remember this in Luke chapter three, those who were coming to be baptized by him, he points them to Jesus and says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the one you're looking for. He's coming, and he's coming with a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So through this baptism that he speaks of, all who would believe would be regenerated. They would be made to be children of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit as that down payment for their salvation. Jesus here, in this image and picture of a fire, is expressing his longing for the fullness of his baptism through salvation to become a reality on the earth. Yet there's another side of that coin. We read in other places in the New Testament that there's coming a day when... This life is over and Jesus returns and it's time for the judgment that his judgment will be dispensed upon this earth. How? Through fire. That the heavens and the earth will melt away. We see these pictures in the New Testament. That the earth is going to burn with unquenchable fire and be made pure. Jesus was distressed over this baptism. The daunting reality for the Lord was that he first had to be immersed in death before these things took place. Remember, his face is set toward Jerusalem. He's moving in that direction. The cross is getting bigger and bigger and bigger on his horizon. So the one who knew no sin would become sin. Why? So that those who are sinful might become the righteousness of God. That's what Paul explains to us in 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus had to bear in his body the sins of all humanity. He had to experience this separation between he and the Father. As the Father exhausted his wrath upon the sin that he bears on our behalf. So Jesus here feels the full weight of this distress. And he's going to continue to feel it until it is accomplished. I.H. Marshall, as he wrestles with this passage and he's trying to make sense of what's taking place here. He says of Jesus... Basically, Jesus is saying this, how I am totally governed by this until it be finally accomplished. Jesus' face, in essence, is set toward Jerusalem, and he's moving in that direction, knowing everything that awaits him there. He's distressed over the cross, all of the things that awaits him there, and the peace, though, that it's going to bring to humanity, those who are made in his image There's no other way to accomplish his desire. You see, humanity, in their sin, is at war with God. Every one of us today, if we have not yet given our lives to Jesus Christ, based on what the Word of God teaches us, means that we are in rebellion. We are at war, open war with God. You are like that general who's marching toward Moscow yesterday, wanting to dethrone the leader. That's a foolish thing to do, right? Who are you to think that you can dethrone the God who created everything that there is? And yet in our sinfulness, in our rebellion, we cannot help but doing that. That is our nature, is to dethrone God. As God being the creator of everything, he is just in putting down our rebellion. And yet he doesn't do so in the way we might think. We would think that the rebellion that we're leading against God, he would just squash it and annihilate us. And yet, what does Psalm 145 tell us that we just read earlier? He is gracious and merciful and good. You see, Jesus never looks past our sin. His justice and his holiness prevents that from ever happening. And so the only way for you and I in our sin to be reunited with the God who created us and the God that we're in rebellion against, the only way for us to be reunited is for someone who is worthy to step in that space and pay the penalty for us. And that is what Jesus, God the Son, does on our behalf. So we are at war with God. Jesus comes As the second person in this Godhead and he takes your sin and he takes my sin upon himself and he dies in that place so that he can fully satisfy the wrath against our sin and yet we can still be forgiven without being cast into the lake of fire forever, which we deserve. He never looks past your sin. He understands that it is is open rebellion against himself and yet he steps in there and says, I will take that punishment. I will take that penalty. And then he gives you and I his righteousness. There's a peace that comes through war. You say, what do you mean by this war? Well, see, this is what's happening here. As Jesus offers himself as this substitutionary uh, atoning sacrifice on our behalf, God the Father exalts his wrath upon the Son so that, in essence, he is waging war against the son so that we can be forgiven and experience the righteousness of that son. And so all the peace that we have with God today, we enjoy because of what Jesus has done for us. But there's a second part of this peace with war. When we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we were once at odds with God. Now we've been made at peace with God. We were once part of the worldly kingdom. Now we're a part of the heavenly kingdom. Things have changed, right? What does that do to our relationships here on this earth? The alliances, the allegiances that we once had, now everything's turned opposite. So now we are at peace with God, but we're at war war with the world. We're at war with the world that we live in. We're at war with the leader of this world. We're at war even within our relationships that we have. Jesus goes on to say that when... He comes when his kingdom comes. Father's going to be set against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Now that's not hard for us to imagine, amen. Or the other way, with father-in-law, son-in-law. I'm praying for some really good son-in-laws in a, about ten years. So if you need, you got some good sons, we'll talk about it over the next decade. There's some things I want in this deal, by the way. Hunting land. on Lake Anna, we'll figure it out, right? But we want to have unity there. So when we think about us being Christians, we need to never be surprised at the division that takes place simply because we know Jesus and we want to follow Jesus. When Jesus brings peace into our lives and brings us peace before God, it turns the tables and now we're at war with the culture in which we live. We've got to learn how to live peacefully with them while still never wavering in our commitment to truth. I've got to move on here. second thing I want you to see here is this idea of recognizing the situation. Jesus moves in, in verse 54 to, to talk about this situation that we need to be able to recognize. In other words, know the season in which we live. Look at verse 54. Jesus says to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say it once. Shower's coming. And so it happens when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there's going to be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, he says. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and the sky. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? You know, the longer you live in a particular place, the more you become familiar with the patterns of the weather. I grew up in Arkansas. I lived there until I was, I don't know, early 20s, 24, somewhere in that neighborhood, and I I could predict the weather. I knew because you grew up in Arkansas, you live in Arkansas, you're not close to a coast. Gulf is not close. The East coast is not close. The Pacific's not close. So every weather pattern comes in from the West. If you're in Northwest Arkansas where I grew up in, it's coming from Oklahoma, right? It's coming from the West. Sometimes wintertime, Northwest, summertime, southwest. But you knew that you could always look west and understand what's happening. I never had to look to the east, which is technically that way. I never had to look to the east and say, I wonder what the weather's going to be like today. No, I'm going to look to the west. So growing up in Springdale, I'm looking towards Salem Springs. What are those clouds telling me about today? That's what Jesus is saying here. You know how to interpret the season. You know how to interpret the weather But you don't know how to interpret the times in which you live. You can understand when the cloud rises in the west, the shower's coming. You understand when the hot wind's blowing off the desert from the south, that it's going to be a hot day. But you don't know how to interpret the seasons. Now, in Virginia, weather's a little harder to predict. You got this thing called the Atlantic Ocean out there. And we get weather, weather patterns like we had this past week which are nuts. I mean, I'm expecting to look to the west and figure out what's going on. All of a sudden this thing blows in from the east or it comes in from the northeast or, you know, in the wintertime, if we're going to get a big snow, I've learned this. Don't look to the things that are coming through West Virginia. That stuff's going to dissipate over the Appalachians. But if you get some moisture coming in from the Carolinas and it hits some cold air coming in from the north, bam, you've got some sledding going on and the kids are out of school for a while. It's a good day. It's a good day. As long as you have four-wheel drive and you beat everyone else to food line to get all the supplies you need for French toast. Because when I don't know why we need eggs, milk, and bread, like that's the things we live on, but when it snows or maybe even rains, we're all making French toast for some reason. So Jesus here calls us to understand or recognize the times, to recognize the situation in which we find ourselves. I wonder today, can you and do you rightly recognize the situation you're in this morning? As you participate in the church on a regular basis, do you recognize Jesus for who he is and what he wants to do in your life? What do you mean by that, pastor? This is what I mean. You sit here Sunday after Sunday. You hear gospel music. I'm not talking about the style, but lyrics that, that, that force you to consider the weightiness of the gospel and you hear me stand up here and, and and preach the Word of God I mean just laying it out I'm not flowery or or, or just uh, overly illustrative i'm just here's the Word of God so you hear that and you're you're you're, uh, you're you're saturated is a good word in the gospel but are your eyes and your ears and your senses open to the point that you Understand the situation of your life. You realize that being religious is not enough. Setting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than setting in your car makes you a NASCAR driver. Rednecks, we're from Virginia, we like NASCAR. I've had shoulder surgery a couple months ago and I've just been working on my boat and not fishing in my boat for a number of weeks now and I've realized it the other day. I'm like, I'm not even a fisherman. I'm the guy that just pretends to be a fisherman. Uh, I got c- clothing that says certain things. Like I, It was a little cool and rainy the other day and so I had to come to a meeting uh, and, and so I put on a sweatshirt so I didn't get drenched and stuff and it said Lawrence, and I get to this meeting and this lady's like, hey, do you fish? And I'm like, how do you know that? Well, she recognized, because her husband fishes too, what that brand is. And so I realized in that moment that I'm the guy that just pretends to fish. That's not really a fisherman because I hadn't been in the lake in so long. We can get to that point where we think that we are a Christian and we think that we're walking with God because we go through certain steps and we play the part of being a follower of Jesus without really recognizing the situation in our lives that we're not truly a disciple. So can you recognize that in your life? This morning, do you need a relationship with Jesus Christ? This morning, if you are in relationship, are you walking at a guilty distance, just kind of going through religious motions, and you need to stop and recognize that situation for yourself? We need to be reminded that there's coming a day when Jesus will return. And when he talks about this fire being dispensed over the earth, that judgment will come. We will all stand and give an account before the Lord as our judge. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you will stand there in your sin and give an account for that. And the Bible's very clear what will take place in your life. You will be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. You say, that's not very fair. It's absolutely fair because you've sinned infinitely against an infinite God. You will be judged for all of eternity, infinitely. But as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've allowed him to step in that space and and take your sin upon himself and you become a part of his kingdom, he bore your sin so that you might now bear his righteousness, you still will give an account. What are you doing with the life of Jesus in your life? Now you're going to be cast into the lake of fire, but you're not going to be very happy when you stand before the Lord with not a whole lot to offer him. Recognize the situation. There's a third thing I want you to see this morning idea of striking a deal. He goes on in verse 57, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an offer to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hands you to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. That, that, that word there that we translate, penny, speaks of this, this uh, piece of money in the Jewish culture of that day, which was like a, I mean, just a microscopic amount of money for a day's salary, like one or something like that. Just pennies. Amen. Like we can't do anything with a penny. I remember as a kid, if you got enough pennies together, you could go buy something, right? I remember riding my bike down to the convenience store and I've got like 25 pennies so I can get something for 25 cents. I can get a couple sticks of bubble gum. You get some pennies together now and I'm thinking what do I do with these? I can't do anything with a bunch of pennies. And last I like get them in a wheelbarrow and I just cart them somewhere to the bank because they're not worth anything. Jesus says judgment's going to be so strict and so precise that you will pay for every last sin. This mini parable that he shares with us here is assuming That all people are guilty and all people are heading for judgment. And so the only sensible thing to do is to try to settle out of court before the judgment when that verdict can only be guilty. So those who are found guilty are going to pay the ultimate price. That's what he's saying here. You understand you're under judgment. You understand that the sin that you carry is taking you to this outcome for your life. And so before you get to that moment, in other words, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, before you stand before the judge of all history, why don't you strike a deal today? If you understand that's where you're going, strike the deal today. What's the deal? What is the deal that Jesus would be laying before us? I see the gospel here. Do you see this gospel call in these verses? He says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate. I I see in here a presupposing of guilt. The apostle Paul makes it clear that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That famous verse that we see in Romans 3.23 articulates that. So the return on that investment, according to Paul, is separation from the life that we were created to experience with God. He would go on to say in Romans six twenty three, what? That the wages of sin is death. See, the payment, the, the paycheck for our sin is death. It is eternal separation. But that's not the end of the story. What's the rest of that verse? But the free gift of God. Christ Jesus is eternal life, right? The free gift, the gracious, merciful offer of the Lord is eternal life in Christ. So in the gospel here, we see the glorious plea deal that Jesus entered with the Father on our behalf. If you've got a Bible or if you want to just uh, fix your eyes upon the screen, I want you to read with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 17, is Paul continues to articulate this idea. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man... Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I understand this morning that Paul's letter to the church at Rome is a beautiful, detailed, difficult theology to work through. As I read those verses, there's a lot going on there. Here's what I want you to see in that. Death that we experience, physical death, which is a the offspring of spiritual death, is all due to sin, right? Adam was told by God in the garden, if you eat of this tree, you will die. What happens when he ate of that tree? Immediately spiritually dead. Cut off from God. How do we know that? He's hiding, he's blaming. All of those things are, are, are coming to light because there is no more spiritual life in him. The the, the relationship he once enjoyed with the father moments before is no longer in existence. So he is now spiritually dead, cut off from God, separated from him. And that life, that rebellion, that heart is passed down from generation to generation to generation, all the way to you and I today. And we will pass that same nature onto our offspring. That one man plunged humanity and all of creation into the curse that we experience today. But Paul says, through one man, all can be made right. Through one man and his trespass, all have been plunged into sin. But through one man and his sacrifice, his righteousness that is imputed on our behalf into us... We can all be made right with God. Now, it doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be going to heaven. But it does mean that everybody has the opportunity. There is provision there for all of us to be made right with God. And so Jesus' sacrifice pleaded down our case before the Father, meaning he became our substitute. So the God, God the Father, as I said earlier, never looks past sin. His holiness and His justice will not allow for it. Through the cross, however, your sin is absorbed. It's covered by the blood of Christ. So you will receive Jesus' deal rather than seeing your sin, and God the Father will see the righteousness of Christ instead of seeing your sin. When we strike a deal when we understand there's judgment coming and we're headed in that direction and we realize that's not the place i need nor the place i want to be i'm going to move and strike a deal it's not that i'm pleading my case it's that jesus has already paid the penalty and he's already argued the defense for me all i got to do is faith into him does that make sense all i got to do is make a deal and i'm not arguing my case I'm not saying I'm good. I'm not saying I'm better. I'm not saying I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not making promises that I know I'm not going to keep. No, here's the deal that we make with God. We say, I'm a sinner and I'm undone. And there's nothing good in me. I can do nothing, I deserve no good, I deserve no grace, I deserve no mercy, I deserve the fires of hell right alongside the devil himself because I'm in rebellion against God. And yet the Bible tells me I'm loved. And the Bible tells me I'm accepted. And the Bible tells me I'm wanted. And so I'm just responding to that. That's the deal we're striking. I bring nothing to the equation. I'm not saying, look at me, I'm religious. Look at me, I know this many Bible verses. Look at me, I've got this kind of attendance in in church. Look at me, I've helped this many old ladies across the road. Look at me, I give this much money to the church, or I don't give this much money to the church. We bring nothing. We are naked and bare before the Lord. And we say, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. And you faith into Jesus, and the deal is made. This morning, I wonder if you've struck that deal in your own life, I don't even really like that language that I'm using here because it, the, the English language here in this phrase makes it seem like we're the one that's perpetuating this deal. No, here's what we need to realize have we responded to the deal that God's offered us? That's a much better way to say it. This morning, that's the thing that needs to happen in some of your lives over and above so many other things. So the greatest need you have, the greatest thing, decision you need to make today is to faith into Jesus. Others, man, you're a Christian, but sometimes your life just doesn't look that way. You're not really walking with God. I say it this way. I love, I've pastored here long enough that I've started to hear some of the phrases that I've said that you start saying them too, which means you're listening at least to some extent, right? And so I say this phrase quite a bit, and I learned it from Johnny Hunt. Great. A mentor in my life, that we're walking at a guilty distance. How many of this morning would say that's that's where I'm at. I'm walking at a guilty distance. I'm in step with Jesus, but he's just way up there. I'm in relationship. He knows my name and I know him, but I'm not walking in step. Where does Jesus want us to walk with him? Side by side. We're right behind him, stepping in every step he takes. He wants us to be close. He wants us to be near. He wants us to be in fellowship together. And we can't do that when we're holding on to sin. So maybe this morning, the reason you're walking into guilty distance as a Christian is because there's sin in your life that you're harboring that you're just not willing to let go. Man, that's a miserable place to be. And I pray the Lord to make you more miserable until you get to a place of brokenness and repentance and faith into him once again. There's a kingdom divided. Jesus calls us to step away from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of heaven, step away from sin into the kingdom of forgiveness and grace. And when we do, we need to understand that it's going to create divisions in our life, but we want to live at peace with others as we walk in that light. Great empires are made through the point of the Spirit. As that kingdom overthrows other kingdoms and takes people by force, an empire is built. You know, next week we are going to celebrate as Americans the independence of our nation. July 4th, 1776, 56 leaders met in a room for a series of days in Philadelphia and eventually signed what we know to be today as the Declaration of Independence. Those 56 leaders came from all over the 13 colonies, and they signed that document basically saying this. We no longer will set under the rule and the reign of the king of Britain. We will no longer be satisfied with the tyranny that comes from the crown. The document that day that they signed did not secure independence for the American colonists. There was a war that took place for a number of years after that. But that document that day that they signed, what it did was simply clarify the division that they sought. And so they had to fight the war. And the war had to be won to secure their freedom from tyranny. Thankfully, the war was waged and the war was won. And the nation's birthday birthday next week will mark our anniversary, our birthday as a country, meaning that we've existed for 247 years. Freedom has reigned and been secured through the tip of the spear. And while we're grateful for the freedom secured for us by our forefathers, as a follower of Jesus, we're even more thankful for the work of Jesus upon the cross. You see, through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his spear, in essence, he has achieved peace through war on sin. And so may we recognize the situation in our own lives. What is that situation this morning? What is the Spirit of God, through the Word of God this morning, Saying to you, and whatever it is, let's strike the deal and say yes to God. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, we are so grateful for Jesus. Because in Jesus we see grace and mercy and goodness. And in Jesus... When we understand all that he endured for us, it helps us to see really who we are. That we are sinful, rebellious, carnal creatures. And it's only because of your goodness, your pursuit of us, that we can even hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Thank you for that. We thank you that your kingdom desires to have subjects in it that were once in rebellion. And yet it's so true. This morning I pray for us. I pray for us that our hearts would hear the message of the gospel today. God, I pray for men in this room who need to come to faith in Jesus. I pray the same for women today. Lord, I pray for anyone who's just been going through religious motions. Whatever those motions may be. Whether they grew up in church or whether they've been in church just a few weeks, maybe a few months. God, this morning, may their heart and their ears be open to your sweet call, your sweet voice. And may they respond with faith and repentance. Turning from their sin, turning to Jesus, saying yes to your lordship in their life. Father God, I understand that as Christians, it's easy for us to trail behind easier for us to fall into a a lifestyle where we less and less look like Jesus and more and more look like the things in this world. Father, I pray this morning that we would just hear the words of Jesus, hear the words on this page that call us to understand and grasp the magnitude of all that he endured on our behalf. The cross that he bore, the blood that he shed, the pain that he endured, all for us, that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, may that drive us, motivate us, move us to walking in step with Jesus. Help us this morning. God, as we live in this culture, may we be reminded that when we pursue Jesus, it's going put it, to put us at odds with those that are around us. God, when we stand for truth and we say this is wrong, it's going to put us in a predicament where others are going to look at us and and accuse us of things that are not true. Help us to just know that that's coming. May we not be surprised. And like Jesus did over and over and over in these Gospels, may we respond with love and kindness and grace, but with steadfastness in our conviction of that which is true. Would you help your church this morning? Speak to us and give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to receive what you'd have us to receive this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.